Well, go ahead and open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, yes, I know you were thinking Isaiah. Uh, we have been going through the prophet Isaiah through since January, uh, and we're going to take just a little break here as we approach Easter. We're going to take about four weeks off as we uh, spend some time over the next three weeks focusing our minds and our hearts upon um, the Easter story and what Jesus is about to do. And uh, our text today is from Matthew chapter 20, and this is build up to the days in which Jesus gives his life, is taken, and is executed. And so chapter 20 we will find here in Matthew where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples, <clears throat> and this is again just days before he is taken and he is executed. So Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at the very last verses of this chapter, but we have to do a little background work in the chapter for us to really get some context because if we don't have that, we don't really have this story. So in verses 17 through 19 there, <clears throat> you will find that Jesus foretells his death. And this is our scripture reading that we had this morning from Matthew chapter 20. He, uh, he foretells his death again to his disciples. This is not the first time that he has told them that he is going to go and die in Jerusalem. Uh, now notice then what happens in verses 20 through 28 in this chapter. What we have here is the mother of James and John approaching Jesus and asking if her sons could have positions of authority. Asking if they could have places of honor when Jesus comes into His kingdom. Have you heard of Mama Bear? Have you heard of Helicopter Mom? Here you go. She approaches Jesus asking that they would have these positions. Now, what's interesting is how Jesus interacts with her and with James and John in this moment. <clears throat> Jesus tells them, the three of them, that they do not know what they're asking. They have no idea what they're really asking for Jesus to do. And in this moment as well, what we find in, in 20 through 28 is that the rest of the disciples, they become, as the word says here, indignant toward these two disciples. So there's quarreling disunity that is created because of these two. Now look at verses 26 through 28. This is what Jesus says in part of his response. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples and one of the mothers of the two disciples, it's pretty revealing. It, it reveals what is really in the heart of people and seemingly good people, James and John, their mother. And this conversation, it, I think it has terrible timing, or at least it seems to have terrible timing, as Jesus has just told them he's going to go die. And what is their response to that? Hey, how can I get a seat? Where can I sit? Please, Mom, go tell Jesus I deserve it. Isn't this just, it just blows my mind, like what's happening here? It seems really, just really at a bad taste, right? 
Like we hear 18 and 19, Jesus saying, I'm going to go be delivered over into the hands uh, and, and be killed by the Gentiles. This is going to happen. And they're asking, well, how can, how can we get a throne? How can we get a spot? I think what we're finding here is that their minds seem to not care at all what Jesus has just said, but only care about their own selfishness and their own ambitions. Jesus tells them, that their understanding of God's kingdom is wrong side up. They have the wrong side. They're seeing this completely wrong. They believed that they attained greatness by having a position, by having some sort of authority, but Jesus tells them that in God's kingdom, greatness is attained or defined by humility and service. We're going to focus in on the last verses of this chapter and what we'll see here is a spiritual reality being painted in a physical way. So look at verses 29 through 34. And as they went out from Jericho, or of Jericho, <clears throat> a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and they heard that Jesus was passing by. They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Simple question, who is blind in the story? You can answer that. Yes, and everyone else except Jesus. Everyone is blind in this story except Jesus. I want you to notice here this morning these four characters that we have out of this story, this very short story. We have the disciples, we have the great crowd, we have Jesus, and then we have these two blind men. Now, for whose benefit did this event happen? Everyone, including Jesus. It's not just merely the two blind men that get the benefit of this healing. Now, obviously, they, they get a benefit from it. But this removing of their blindness is for everyone who is present. And even for us today, we will get a benefit from this happening. Not a physical benefit, but a spiritual one. And in verses 29 to 34, humility is on display in the face of rancid pride. Jesus shows us how to live, how to love, how to treat others. And it's not like the Gentile rulers who lorded over the people, as verse 25 says in this chapter, but real leadership, real love is pursuing people selfless, selflessly. Selflessly. Let's examine each of these characters in this story to really get a sense of what's happening, what are the lessons that we can learn here. The first group is the disciples. As I gave you the context already of this chapter, the disciples are these first characters that we need to be aware of. The selfishness of these two disciples, James and John, led to the disunity of the whole group, a disgruntled group of disciples. It seems as though that this band of disciples has instantly forgotten the prediction that Jesus gave. I'm going to go die. And their minds have now been taken off of that, of what's going to happen to him. And their focus has quickly been put onto themselves. 
So this happened. James and John you know, sent their mom to, to go talk to Jesus. But it, it corrupted the whole group. It distracted all of their minds from what is the mission that Jesus is on. I think this is a perfect example for us and of what we do. How often do we hear the Word of God, whether it's in, in preaching or maybe it's in podcasts or it's in the reading of the Word? We hear this instruction. We hear the direction. We hear the mission of God. But then we act like we didn't hear anything. We act just like these disciples that, yeah, I heard that, but you know what? I need Jesus. You know what I want to do? And it's focusing our hearts and our minds upon the physical things of the world, of what maybe we can gain or potentially what we could lose. And since they were so consumed with the physical world, Jesus, Jesus in His perfect wisdom, in His perfect teaching, He decides to use something physical to drive home His point about being a servant, about being humble. He decides to use these two men as a visual aid of sorts. Now remember these disciples, they've been hanging around Jesus for about three years. I mean, day in, day out, week after week, about three years' time, they are constantly around him. So if there was ever a group that should act like, think like Jesus, shouldn't have been these guys? Shouldn't have been these individuals? But what we are seeing is that they are focused upon themselves and not upon the one in whom they follow. I think this is a really good reminder for us. Because just maybe, you have been following Jesus for a really long time. Longer than three years. But you need to ask yourself the question, am I acting like Him? Am I thinking like Him? Am I speaking like Him? Am I serving like Him? A follower of Jesus should be like Jesus should be like Him in action, in word, in deed. A follower should be like Him. I mean, in the, the word Christian itself, it originates from the idea of being so much like Christ that you're a little Christ. The disciples, they'd forgotten, they'd forgotten what it means to be a follower of the Messiah. And maybe you need to be reminded of that today. Maybe you need to be reminded that you are a follower of the Messiah. You are a Christian. Let's look at the second group, this great crowd. And and great is not a descriptor of the character of the crowd, but of the size of the crowd. This crowd is like other crowds that gathered around Jesus, that hound-dogged Him around the Sea of Galilee. As they would see Him on one side, they'd run to the other before He could get there. They, they followed Him wanting to hear Him, to see Him, to see what miracles He could do. I, I think they had selfish motives, as did the disciples. And we see this in verse 31. If you look at the first part of verse 31, it says, "...the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent." They didn't have the mindset of Jesus. They had the mindset like the disciples. These two blind men, they were becoming a distraction. They were an inconvenience. And this crowd didn't like it. They were probably telling these men to be quiet because they couldn't hear. They couldn't see. They were being interrupted. Their concern was for their own benefit and their own pleasure. And so their rebuke of these two men is just like the indignant attitude of the other ten disciples with James and John. There's disunity. There's discord. 
their selfishness on display. And even though this crowd could see and hear Jesus with their physical eyes and ears, they were completely missing him, just like the 12 disciples. Just like these 12 that began to fight over position, over authority. And in this crowd, it is a picture of how pride begins to squash the people around you because you only have interest in your interest and not the interest of others. And the crowd, they are jockeying for position around Jesus just like the disciples were. Where am I going to sit? How can I be closer so I can hear? Be quiet, you. Let's look at the third character of the story, which is really where the, the ultimate focus should be, and that is Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah. We learn a lot about Jesus in this story, and ultimately what we learn is, is about the heart of God in this story. Jesus never does anything haphazardly or randomly. And we get this sense really from the entirety of chapter 20. If you just read 29 through 34 without the context before, you may think, oh, this is a random thing that happened. But oh no, this is not random at all. He, he has given his intentions and he has given his father's plan of redemption, but it seems like nobody is taking him seriously. Nobody is listening that they are consumed with self. And it's interesting that three out of the four gospel authors record this very same story. So I would say that Jesus' strategy for getting his point across, it worked. It worked. It eventually worked. It, it sunk into their minds. It sunk into their hearts of what was the point. One of the characteristics on display from Jesus is that Jesus has pity or Jesus has compassion. Jesus wanted to hear the cries of the crowd, or hear the cries of these men, but the crowd wanted to silence them. Jesus wanted to meet their needs, but what did the crowd want? They wanted to ignore it. There's a very obvious contrast that's being made here in these, these few verses, this contrast of, of what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be a servant? It, it seems to be really obvious as we look into this text, as we look at this entirety of the situation, but in the moment, nobody's seeing it. But it ends up being recorded in three different Gospels. So it's after the fact that, that they realize what they missed. And I don't want you to miss something this morning. We see here how Jesus is sympathizing with people in their sufferings. Jesus had told his followers some of the most important information that they could ever have known, but what is the response to it? Well, how am I going to get my way? How, how am I going to get my position? They ignored it. They, they ignored the important message that Jesus had. So Jesus knows. He knows what it feels like to be ignored. He knows what it feels like to be mistreated or to be seen as unimportant. Let me take you to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15 and 16 tells us this. For we do not have a high priest, meaning Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus was really a man who really knew what it meant to suffer. Suffer physically, 
emotionally, mentally, even spiritually. Now all the other high priests before Jesus, of course they they suffered in similar ways and, and we suffer in similar ways, but the amazing thing about Jesus and his sufferings is what this text tells us, yet without sin. He didn't fall prey to the temptations in suffering to, to blame God, to, to curse God. He's unlike any other high priest. He is unlike us in this point. He did not need to be cleansed or to offer sacrifices on his behalf because he's without sin. But the amazing thing about Jesus is that even though he is so unlike everyone, he has compassion and pity upon those who suffer and deserve even worse suffering than what they're in. Jesus demonstrates what he, do, what he told his disciples about greatness. In verses 26 through 28, greatness is not found in positions or in power, but in humility and in compassion. Greatness is found in serving others' needs over your own. Greatness is being willing to be inconvenienced and interrupted. Greatness is using what the Lord has given you to help those who are hurting. Greatness is regarding others as more important than yourself. And those who are truly humble in heart will truly be great. This is what Jesus is demonstrating. He's demonstrating true greatness. Do you want to be truly great? Do you desire that? Do you want that? Then be humble like your Savior. Be humble like your Lord. Be a Christian. Let's turn our attention to the fourth group that is here, the fourth characters that that we find in the story, the two blind men. It's interesting to me that there's two of them. Two of them. Because there was two disciples that created such the problem, right? I, I don't know if there's anything to that, but I, I do find it interesting that this happens this way. These two blind men, they, they heard that Jesus was passing by, and their response to this was to start crying out and to create a fuss amongst the crowd, kind of like James and John did with the disciples. Now, why would they do such a thing if Jesus was just, was just merely a teacher or just merely a rabbi? Why would they respond this way, that they would create such a commotion, such a problem, if he was just like all the others? Well, they wouldn't, right? They had heard something. They had heard something, a rumor maybe about who Jesus was, about what he could do, and it led them to believe or have a faith in him that he could do something about their situation. He could restore their sight, Maybe they heard rumors as people passed through Jericho and, and they talked about around the Sea of Galilee how Jesus had, had healed people and even raised people from the dead and, and all these things were happening and maybe they thought, if he ever passed through here, we, we need to meet him. We need to call to him to have pity on us, to have mercy on us. Now, however, maybe they heard about Jesus or what Jesus could do, it, it doesn't necessarily matter but they were not going to miss their opportunity. Their opportunity that God had given them. And so what do they do with that opportunity? They cry out to Jesus for what? Look at verse 30 again. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They cried out. Now that, that word, 
that is used there, cried. This is the word that can also be a descriptor of screaming or shrieking. Now, if you don't know what that is, then you need to come and be part of a children's ministry for a while. And you will know what screaming and shrieking is. Now, children screaming and shrieking is usually connected to joy and happiness, which I don't understand. But this is not that. This is desperation. This word, the same word, is used in Matthew several different times. One of those places it's found is whenever, whenever Jesus is walking on the water and Peter comes out on the water. And what happens to Peter? He sinks. And what does he do? He cries out to Jesus. The cries of these men, it would be very similar to Peter's cry for help. It's one of desperation, crying, help, please, help. Their desperation, these two men, their desperation, it leads to action. And that action was throwing off any kind of concern, any kind of thought of what others might think, of what others might do. They screamed above the noise of the crowd. Look at verse 30 and 31. Look at what they say. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And again in 31, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. This is a title, Son of David. It's it's a title that is used to identify the Messiah. They had a belief about Jesus that went beyond him being some teacher or some rabbi, but to the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Christ. This, this is what they understood about him. The desire of the disciples was to be part of the Messiah's kingdom. The Messiah's kingdom. But they've forgotten what the Messiah was actually going to do. What what did the Messiah tell them? He's going to go and give his life. These men who who cry out to Jesus didn't know what the mission of Jesus was or, or really anything about who Jesus was other than this is really their first encounter with him. They hoped. They hoped that Jesus would do something. He would... He would interact with them in some way. They they knew that it required something special, something divine. What do they cry out for? Mercy. Mercy is something that maybe you're familiar with. Maybe you're familiar with the term anyways. But let me, can I help your understanding with this? When the Bible uses this term mercy, it uses it in the context of someone having pity on one who is in some sort of distress, some sort of problem that is there, and one that has power, one that has an authority, one that can do something about it, has mercy. And the idea of mercy extends even further in the Bible to even like a courtroom kind of setting of God, by God having mercy upon the one who is guilty of breaking his law. He has mercy on them. A really simple definition of mercy is one maybe you know, it is not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. We see here the greatness of our Lord in this moment. This little short story about two blind men being healed, what do we see? We see mercy. Let me ask you this question. What did these two men have to offer Jesus? What do they have in their pockets that they could give him to fix their problem? What do they have in their character or, or in their background? What do they have to offer him for such a, a, 
an amazing, amazing power to be displayed to them. They had nothing. Nothing. All they had to offer was their faith in Him. They cried out for mercy, crying out for Jesus to have pity, to have compassion to be shown to them. Now notice, notice what happens here. Notice the humility of these two blind men. Their description, or their desperation, it led them to a humiliating situation where they would possibly suffer even more public ridicule, ridicule and embarrassment in the crowd. And what do they do? They tell them to be quiet. But what do they do? What's their response? They cried even louder for Jesus to have mercy on them. They knew that the crowd wasn't going to fix their problem or even offer them some sort of solution. But they, they believed that Jesus could. They believed that Jesus, the Messiah, could do something. So they cried out. And look at Jesus' response, 32. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus stops. Stops. The whole crowd stops. Calls them to himself. And then he asks what I think seems to be just a ridiculous question, right? What do you want me to do for you? They're blind. Like, do you not see it, Jesus? Are you the one that's blind here? Do you not see their condition? Do you not see what the problem really is? Does Jesus not know their need? Is he that oblivious to what's going on? Is he the one that's being selfish? Is he the one that's, that's absorbed in himself? Not at all. Of course not. This is not what we have. What this does is remind me of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve, they, they've sinned against God, and what do they do? They, they run and hide in the bushes, hoping that God won't find them. God comes to the garden again. He calls to Adam, where are you? Did God lose Adam? Did the omniscient God not know where he was? Of course not. The question was for who? Adam's sake. Adam's heart. Adam's understanding. The question was for his benefit so Adam could confess what the problem was, so he could repent of the problem. But he doesn't confess. Adam doesn't confess. Adam is prideful, and Adam deflects from the real issue to something else. These men, on the other hand, what do they do? They honestly, they honestly confess what their condition is. Unlike Adam, they know their condition, and they know there's only one solution, to come to the Lord, to come to the Messiah. And they ask, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now, I want you to think about that request for a second. Think about that request that they're asking. Let our eyes be opened. There has never been, there has never been a successful full eye transplant. We can do a lot of cool stuff medically. We can't do that. Hasn't been done. They're still working on it. Surgeons can replace different parts of the eye, but they have never replaced a full eye. Hasn't happened. Maybe there's some disease that they could work with and stick a needle in your eye and shoot some stuff in there or replace something, but they can't do a full eye transplant. It's too complicated. It's too complex. Too many nerves, too many things going on. And so these guys, these, these guys are asking that their eyes would regain sight, and this is before anyone in the history has even tried to do this. 
has even tried to repair something or transplant something in the eye. They don't even have glasses at this point, right? So it's not like they're asking like, for Jesus to be a really good optometrist. Like, oh, could you give me some glasses? They have no concept of that, right? They're asking something that is completely ridiculous. This is a ridiculous thing they're asking unless Jesus has the power to do ridiculous things in a truly supernatural thing, a truly superhuman thing. They believe something ridiculous. Verse 34, what does Jesus do? He grants their request. Too often we read the Bible and we're so familiar with it that we, we miss the impact of these stories. We miss the impact of the questions. We miss the impact of what's going on before, what's happening after. We, we miss the moment that this takes place. Please don't miss that. He grants their humble, their honest, and huge request. Let us regain our sight. What they hoped to be true of Jesus was true. It was true. He really is the Messiah. He is the one who was from God and is God. He really is able to do the impossible. He really is merciful. He really is compassionate. And what's the response of these two men? Again, look at 34. What is their response? They followed him. What do they do with the gift that has been given to them? They didn't deserve it. It's all an act of mercy. It's all an act of pity. It's all an act of compassion. What do they do with this gift? They follow the one who has granted them mercy. What's interesting is that they don't go back to the spot where they were begging. They don't go back to the same place that they had just came from. They don't have this miraculous thing take place, go back and say, well, that was awesome. Wasn't that cool? I can see you now. You can see me. Look at my hand. Isn't that cool? And then go, uh, alms for the poor? They don't do this. Why? They are transformed. They have been made different. They don't take this gift that has enabled them to be different and then go back to the same thing. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be crazy to go back to the same things? They've received their sight, and they're not going to waste it. They're not going to waste their life by acting the same way, doing the same thing in the same place. They have been changed. They have received the mercy of God of God. And what do they do? They pursued Him. They pursued Him with joy because of the mercy that had been shown to them. Now that brings us to our application and to us. Now we're not in the story, but we received this story this morning and we should learn something from it. There's three things I want you to see here. There's a lot of things that we could really pull out of here, but here's just three things of what, we, what I think we need to learn from this, the first thing being that the physical represents the spiritual. The physical represents the spiritual. This physical story it is representation of the spiritual reality of not just these two men, but of everyone, including us. This physical representation of what Jesus is capable of doing in giving sight is merely a foretaste of what He is going to do in just a matter of days. What he has promised 
he will do. Jesus' death is going to be a substitute for sinners who deserve God's wrathful judgment. What they deserve. He's going to give his life as a ransom. Look at verse 28 again. A ransom. This, this word ransom, it, is, it has this connection to something that's required. Demanded. It's required, not meaning that he is going to die for you as some sort of generic expression of love, but he died instead of you. Hopefully you see the difference there. Not just for you, as just expressing a love for you generally, vaguely, but instead of you. In your place. His physical death is representation of the spiritual death that was coming for you, and he paid the price instead of you. You should have amen that. It's too late. You already blew it. <laughs> the death of Jesus, it was a transaction being made on your behalf. Instead of you, he did it. Instead of your death, which is an eternal death, the eternal Son of God died in your place. He has taken your condemnation upon Himself. Your wrath upon Himself. And this, this is a personal transaction that has taken place, not just for some obscure group of people, but for you. Again, amen. Where are you at? like softballs you whiff the the blindness of these two men it is a representation of the disciples blindness spiritually the crowds spiritual blindness nobody's seen it it is also a representative of our spiritual blindness ourselves we've been just like these poor blind beggars who can't fix our biggest problem of sin that has stolen our spiritual blindness. All we can do, all we can do is cry out for mercy like these men do. But you will not cry out for mercy as long as you're proud. Second point, the Lord is attracted to humility. The Lord is attracted to humility. Isaiah 66, 2 the second part of that verse, it says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What is God attracted to? What is Jesus attracted to? Humility. We're, we're told in three different places in the Scripture that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the spiritual healing that everyone needs is is only going to come when humility is present because humility is the only right posture to have before a holy God. There's no room for prideful, self-promoting people in the Lord's kingdom. True humility does not make a claim of deserving better or I got a raw deal. This is not how these guys approached Jesus, was it? They, they approached him with a humble honest confession of the problem and of the solution. The question Jesus asked of them was to highlight their need. Just like God asked in the garden to Adam, Adam, where are you? It's to highlight the need. 
It wasn't just for themselves, but it was for everybody else watching, everybody else listening. And Jesus stops the crowd, and everybody has to listen, right? Everybody's quiet at that point. The proud and self-righteous are incapable of seeing others in a gracious light. Those who are filled with pride will overlook others' needs and others' worth. They see themselves as the most valuable, which plays itself out in not hearing the cries of others or the sufferings of others. They discount and they dismiss other people's opinions. And Jesus, he shows us here, what is greatness? What is greatness? Greatness is a person with a humble heart, and he is attracted to that. Third point of application, the only right response to mercy is obedience. The only right response. When your spiritual eyes are opened, you will see what you've been missing. Just as these two men started to follow Jesus because of his mercy shown to them, so must you. We must not act like the poor beggar anymore going back to your spot of poverty, going about your business the same way, going about acting as though you're blind when you're not. We've been given sight. And we should act like we have been given spiritual eyes. If Jesus has opened your eyes spiritually, then you should be following Him, not acting like you did before when you couldn't see. And if you are acting, if you are acting like your eyes have never been opened, I think I, I would offer you this question. Ask yourself the honest question, have my eyes actually been opened? Maybe you're still blind. Maybe you're still groping around, but you're saying, oh, I follow Jesus, but you, you can't even find the gate. You can't find the gate of the city on your own. Have you been lying to yourself? Maybe have others been lying to you? Saying, yeah, you're, yeah, you can see. But there's no evidence of you seeing. If you haven't, if you haven't been given spiritual eyes, please do this. Call out for mercy. Call out to Jesus today that your eyes would be opened. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with Him. Confess to Him what you desperately need. What you desperately need is for your eyes to be opened. This story, it gives us a, a great reminder that the Christian life that we live is based upon the mercies of God and not upon our merits. As we will observe in, in just a moment, the Lord's Supper, we'll be reminded of this truth. It is upon Jesus' merits, not mine. It is the work of our Lord, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, who gave His life as a ransom for you. Your condition was impossible for you to overcome just like these two men, but the mercy of God has been shown to you. His blood was shed, His body broken for you. He has shown pity. He's shown pity to the pitiful. Would you please take a few moments to 
start to prepare your heart and your mind to, to receive these elements of the Lord's Supper. If you haven't had your eyes opened by Jesus Christ, or as Scripture tells us, that you have, you have turned from sin or repented of sin, and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then this event right now, what we're about to do, it, it is not for you. Communion is a sign of the covenant that has been made with those who have had their eyes opened. They see. They've been changed. They've been transformed. It is a remembrance to those who were once blind, but now they see. It reminds us of what was and what is now. But we do want to encourage you to observe what's happening, to pray in this moment that the Lord would have mercy upon you today that you would be changed, that you would be brought under that covenant that Jesus has established. Would you spend just a few moments in preparation? I'm going to ask our deacons to go ahead and come and prepare the elements. And we'll partake of this in just a moment. Again, dismissing you from these outside aisles, asking you to go back to your seats to the center aisle.